Welcome to Fortress of Faith with Tom Wallace, calling North America to repentance and revival. Well, welcome back once again to the Corner of Truth and Courage. You're listening to Fortress of Faith. This is Tom Wallace. This week we've been talking to you a bit about this attempt by Muslims to try to suppress the free speech of non-Muslims. And today I want to break into what has been passed in the United Nations. It's called Resolution 1618. It is a, an offense. It is hate speech to criticize Islam. And I'm going to break this down for you here, how it got passed, who is behind it, what this means in international law, and how this is being applied in other countries. I want to bring you back to what Voltaire said back in the 1700s, because this speaks volumes. He said, to learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize. If you cannot criticize certain people, then basically they have rule and control over you. The United Nations of the Human Rights Council came and approved a resolution back on the 19th of December, 2011. Now, this is roughly just over 10 years, almost 10 years to the day of anniversary of 9-11. I mean, just shortly past it. So 10 years after the great Islamic terrorist attack that shook and rocked the world, especially for us here in the United States, the United Nations passed this resolution 1618, and it's called the Denigration of Religions. Now, originally when it was written, it was written to make it illegal, an offense, hate speech, to denigrate Islam, to speak out against Islam. Well, it wasn't getting passed that way. And so they tweaked the language a little and said, okay, just denigrate religions. Of course, we all know what religion they are intent on protecting, and that is Islam. So who was the sponsor? Who was the founder of this bill that passed in the United Nations? It was founded by the OIC. The OIC is the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. They were founded back in 1969. They're the second largest co-op in the United Nations. What I mean by that, they organize together and vote together and, uh, and create, you know, like, uh, you know, an organization saying, okay, we're all going to vote one way. We're all going to vote against this and we're going to vote for this. And we, as a collective group of nations, are, um, uh, are organized to push through things that we value. And so the OIC has become extremely powerful and influential in the United Nations. So when other non-Muslim nations need to pass a vote, they buddy up with these people. Said, listen, we want you to lend your voice to our issue. And if they can sway them in, you know, um, then they, uh, they get things accomplished that they want accomplished. So deals are made. And in the OIC, 
has become extremely powerful. It is a member. It's a 56 states are part of this group. 57 if you count Palestine, which they're not officially a state, but they're given a seat. They're in the United Nations as if they were a state. And so they get a, they get a vote, even though they're not an official state country. So, uh, so these 57 bodies uh, sponsored this denigration of religion. And as a result, when it was passed, and by the way, this resolution comes up every year. Every year it co- comes up. And, and so they, again, are reiterating their approval that anyone who denigrates the religion of, uh, or any religion, but we know which one we're talking about, Islam, then we want that to be considered as an illegal act. Now, what the United Nations passes in their general council or in the human rights council doesn't necessarily make it law for other nations. But what it does is it establishes precedent. And when a nation comes into some kind of financial struggle or crisis or whatever, and they call upon the United Nations for help, when they come to the international community and say, we need help, we've had this war or this natural disaster, and we need help from the international community to send funds, whatever. Now they have their hat in their hand, and uh, and they come saying, come help us. And the United Nations says, we'll be glad to send you our troops or our monies and refugee uh, help and, and food and all that kind of stuff. But we notice that you don't quite agree with the international community with your laws. We need to see some changes first. And then we'll send the money. And then we'll send the help. And so this is how nations who do not comply with the United Nations uh, resolutions, how they start complying. Let me give you some examples um, of how it's been played out in Europe. Europe, for the most part, still has a great deal of freedom of speech unless you speak out against Islam. And many of these European nations who've been uh, receiving help from the United Nations has had to comply in Calto to the whims of this Muslim uh, resolution. A friend of mine is Elizabeth Sabadich Wolf. Elizabeth, uh, we've, we've spent a fair bit of time together since this all came to play. I've known her now for a number of years. She was involved with Act for America, which I uh, was a chapter leader with Act for America. I helped chapters get formed around the nation. She is an American citizen, but married to a citizen of Austria. And so she's also an Austrian. Her parents are Americans who were in the diplomatic corps and stationed overseas, and she was born actually in Austria. And so she's an American citizen, but also a dual citizen of Austria. Well, uh, she was teaching in her course, in her class, um, about Islam, speaking out some of the dangers and the problems of Islamic terrorism. And she was going through the history of Muhammad. And what I'm going to tell you is absolutely true. I mean, it's well 
um, versed in the in in the hadiths, in the record, the Islamic record, the history of Muhammad. He was married to a six-year-old girl. Her name was Aisha. He called her his favorite wife. Now, Muhammad had plenty of wives. We know of about 14, at least at one time. He divorced a few through the process of time. He had an enormous harem of um, sex slaves. um, And um, and so, (laughs) but uh, those who were his wives, Aisha was um, was the youngest. She was six years of age. And uh, now, you say, well, that, that, that was terrible, horrible. Now, you also need to realize, in Europe still, at, at sometimes uh, through history, they would marry at the age of 12 or 13 or 14. They would at least wait until puberty <laughs> uh, there. So marrying earlier is not wasn't completely, absolutely a foreign concept throughout the world but six years of age that that is quite early and but he was a stand-up guy Muhammad he waited till she was nine before he consummated his marriage with her and the actual law of Islam and I know this is I'm trying to be delicate folks I um, I know I'm on radio here but uh, as long as her body can support the weight of a husband that should be sufficient so um now some say because muhammad actually fancied little children uh, that were still crawling around on the floor that he desired them uh some imams have gone on to say that there's no minimum age at all for marriage but most will say six because of that's that was the marrying age of Aisha or nine because that's when it was consummated so there's differences of viewpoint well uh Elizabeth get back to my story Elizabeth was uh fined and sued for hate speech for calling Muhammad a pedophile now the facts are that he had sex with children and that's not uncommon in the Islamic world still today because Muhammad did it and if you're a good muslim muhammad's the perfect man he is the exemplar and and if he did it you do it uh, if you're a good muslim and so um and now we in the west we would simply call that pedophilia but because she called it pedophilia and even though it was true in our viewpoint it doesn't matter whether it's true or not it denigrated the viewpoint of the of Muhammad is if he was a criminal. You're suggesting that he did something ugly and criminal and evil and wicked. Um, yeah, <laughs> I guess that about sums it up. And so she was guilty of that, and she fought this in the uh, appellate courts of Europe and stuff and kept losing every time. I could go on. Gert Wilders in the Netherlands, a leader of the Dutch Reformed Party. He produced a short film called Fitna. And all through this film, it just simply quoted the Quran and quoted the Hadiths of Muhammad's teachings. And uh, and it created such outrage in Europe um, and considered hate speech. He was indicted uh, five times, five different charges for religious hatred against Muslims, and he had to fight 
uh, legal battles as a result of that. In Denmark, Lars Hedegaard, uh, the president of the International Free Press Society, was found guilty in the Danish court back in 2011 of hate speech for simply saying in a taped interview that there was a high incidence of child rape and domestic violence in areas dominated by the Muslim culture. I've got seven or eight, nine different things I could outline to you of examples of where um, if you're not Muslim and you speak against Islam, you're going to go to court and courts are upholding aspects of this international law, Resolution 1618. Now, here in the United States, that won't hold because we have the First Amendment, which protects us, and we can be thankful for it. But remember Juan Williams, a journalist, liberal journalist with the uh, uh, PBS, and he got fired from his job at PBS back when he said, I don't know what year it was, about 10 years ago, but when I get on a plane, I got to tell you, I see the people in Muslim garb, and I think, you know, they're, they're identifying themselves first and foremost as Muslims. I get worried. I get nervous. Now, this was after 9-11. And he got fired simply for saying, I get nervous when I see Muslims in Muslim garden and I get on an airplane. Even though it may not be law that they use against us, they use other influences to shut us up. And when we see that and see them get shut out of their jobs or persecuted and, and fined and all that stuff there, it tells the rest of us, don't go there. We're not going to talk about it. And then what have we done? We have submitted. And that's exactly what they're after. We're going to have to stop there, but join us again tomorrow at the Corners of Truth and Courage. God bless you.